welcome to the Story Us podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. In this second part of our two-part series on Equatorial Guinea, we'll take a look at the authors and literary works that have emerged from the West African country as they responded to the country's turbulent history and also to the experience of exile in Spain, where many of these writers fled. To do so, I'm joined by Michael Ugarte, Professor Emeritus of Spanish at the University of Missouri and author of the book, Africans in Europe, The Culture of Exile and Immigration from Equatorial Guinea to Spain. I'm also joined by Benita San Pedro Vizcaya, a professor of Spanish colonial studies at Hofstra University and author of numerous articles on Equatorial Guinean literature. So Michael and Benita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Foster. I wanted to start with you, Benita, because up until the last couple of decades of colonial rule, in Equatorial Guinea, most of the writing about the country was done by Spaniards. So what points did these Spanish writers tend to emphasize about Equatorial Guinea when they viewed it through a colonial lens? So the writing on Equatorial Guinea, I guess, particularly the earlier writing, will need to kind of be uh, divided in the different regions of the country. It is not the same thing the writing on Fernando Po or on the coastal territorial space of Rio Muni or the Muni estuary by the island of Corisco and so on. So uh, there is quite a lot of uh, writing on Fernando Po since uh, the mid 19th century already, right? So we have lots of writing from uh, missionaries like the primitive Methodist missionary Henry Rowe that writes in the 1870s about West African scenes being descriptions of Fernando Po, climate, etc. We have uh, writings on Fernando Po from earlier um, ethnographers or um, anthropologists that passed by the island, such as the Austrian Oscar Baumann uh, that writes Fernando Po and the Boobies, Boobies being the ethnic group of the island in the 1880s. And then we have writings uh, by many other kind of passerbys, right? Like uh, German anthropologist uh, Gunter Tessman or, um, you know, Mary Kingsley, right? Or uh, John Holt, which was an English um, merchant and settler on the island of Fernando Po. So all those write about the island um, in the second part of uh, the 19th century. They are not necessarily Spaniards, right? Although there are some Spaniards that write about the island as well. The writing on the island of Fernando Po in the 19th century is interesting because the island was occupied by different people right throughout the century. For the first part of the century, listeners will know from the previous episode on Equatorial Guinea, of course, the island was um, kind of occupied by the British, right? And it was the site of the Anti-Slavery Commission. But on the second half of the 19th century, the island of Fernando Po was also the destined, was a presidio island uh, for Cuban political deportees in particular. 
other types of Spanish deportees too, but mainly for Cuban political deportees. So interestingly, we also have quite a lot of writing about the island from some of these deportees that wrote about the experience, right, being in confinement in that island. I will give just one example uh, because it is kind of well-known. Francisco José Balmaceda, right, that writes in 1869 um, when he is liberated. Uh, the Confinados in Fernando Po, Impressions of a Journey to, um, to Guinea, etc. Right, And there are many others. So um, there is less of a volume right, of writings in the earlier periods on the continental uh, region of Equatorial Guinea. Uh, but there is quite a lot of it on the coastal area of the continental region and also on the Muni estuary, not least because uh, the Presbyterian missionaries were settled there at least since the 1840s. So there is a lot of writing that is produced from then, right? And actually, the very first of books, right, published by an author, you know, born in the territories that today confine, uh, be, are part of Equatorial Guinea, is by Ibia Ikenge. The book was published in English, not in Spanish, Customs of, well, in Benga and English, Customs of the Benga and Neighboring Ethnic Groups, and it was originally published in 1872. So he was from the island of Corisco, right, on the Muni estuary. Yeah, and for those listeners who want to um, review a bit of that geography and early colonial history um, of yeah, what became Equatorial Guinea, definitely want to go back and listen to that uh, episode uh, 55 where we cover some of that background. Were there also uh, colonial writings as we're kind of moving forward in time into the Franco dictatorship of Spaniards who were kind of reviewing uh, Equatorial Guinea from that colonial lens? Yes. So, um, so there is all this writing, right, uh, from the 19th century, which is very interesting as well, right, to situate the territories and interesting in many different ways. I mean, it's not writing necessarily only by Spaniards, right? Right. Uh, into the 20th century, since the beginning of the 20th century, there is, of course, a lot of writing produced on the territories that today uh, comprise Equatorial Guinea. So we have a lot of writing of the so-called kind of rational planners of empire, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of writing from colonial administrators. We have a lot of writing from uh, geographers, right? From ethnographers, also from agronomers or specialists on agriculture, right? So we have lots of treaties on coffee crops, on timber, on banana, on different type of crops that they were trying out, right, in these territories, particularly as they were turning them into plantation territory. Um, there is also, since the beginning of the 20th century, a big corpus on public health and medicine, right? Or what we uh, what was called then tropical medicine. So there is quite a lot of uh, writing on sleeping sickness, on malaria, also on leprosy, right? And other so-called health issues. 
that colonial settlers, right, thought that they needed to be addressed in, in terms of turning these territories into a successful colonial territory, I guess. Uh, there is also literary writing, right, and journalism. Lots of writers from Spain that travel to Equatorial Guinea and write about their experiences, or more like in novelistic genre. There are also some writers in Spain in the first half of the 20th century that never traveled to Equatorial Guinea or to the colonial lands, right? But they wrote about it and they wrote several successful novels about it. One example is Liberata Masoliver, right? Um, she's a Catalan writer, and in the 1950s and 60s, she publishes um, a number of novels like La Mujer del Colonial, The Colonial Settler's Wife, right? Something like that. Very successful. And, you know, they represent like life in the colonies, right? In 1946, after the Franco dictatorship, right, uh, there is uh, a new like institution of knowledge, so to speak, inaugurated in Madrid, the Instituto de Estudios Africanos, so the Institute of African Studies, right, which will be entrusted with producing knowledge about the African colonies. So they publish a number of journals, right, periodicals, but also lots of scholarship on many different topics as mentioned earlier, right? So from 1940s onwards throughout the colonial period, we have lots of writings uh, from this kind of institutional center or supported by uh, this Institute of African Studies, right? Okay. And this more or less takes us to, you know, 1968 when uh, the country becomes independent, right? Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, it sounds like a lot of the writing coming from the Franco regime was uh, was of that technocratic nature that it's kind of typical of, of Francoism and, and also this idea of science in quotes uh, being a method of control uh, mm. in the colonies. But now you mentioned those last years of the control of the Franco dictatorship over Equatorial Guinea. And I understand that's a time when we also start seeing writers emerging from Equatorial Guinea itself. Although you mentioned there, there were a few even before this period. Uh, so who were some of these uh, pioneers and did they have a different perspective from that of the Spanish uh, colonizers? Yes, so we have a few um, early public, I mean, early, you know, the first publications, right, by authors, uh, full books, I mean, um, born in Equatorial Guinea uh, since the 1950s. So the first of these books is by the author um, called Leoncio Evita, uh, Cuando los Combes Luchaban, it's the title, so when the Combes, Combe being the ethnic group, uh, were fighting or something like that will be the translation. His book was published in 1953. And uh, interestingly, the book was published by the same Institute of African Studies established by the Francoist regime, right, the decade earlier. So it is this institute that subsidizes or promotes uh, the publication of his book, right, uh, which has like a heavy 
ethnographic component, right, on that particular ethnic group. The second of the books by um, uh, an author, the actually formerly Fernando Po, today Island of Bioko, right, is Daniel Fones Matama. And his book was published in 1962. He was living in Barcelona already at the time. He went to Barcelona to study, right? And then he published his book there. He was a medical doctor. And uh, the title of his book was Una Lanza por el Boabí. I wouldn't know exactly how to translate that, uh, but he's published in 1962. And actually, there is another book published by a Guinean author in 1962. And um, interestingly, this book is the only one that was published in Equatorial Guinea itself, right, on the island of Fernando Po. It is by Miguel Zamora Loboch. And the title of the book is Noticia de Anobón. So information about Anobon geography, history, and customs, right? He was from the island of Anobon. He was actually the father of one contemporary, very relevant author also, literary author, right? Uh, Francisco Zamora Loboch, right? He is the author of many very important novels since the 2000 onwards, right? And this, Miguel Zamora Loboch, was his father. His book is really not very well studied. In fact, it has never been reprinted since 1962, as has not been the one by Daniel Fones Matama, also published in 1962. But I think it's one of these situations in which, you know, scholars kind of left them behind, but they need to be revisited, I think. And they have not only a lot of information, but interesting perspectives, right, on uh, the coloniality of things in the 1960s in that region. That really brings me to uh, my next question here, because, yeah, already it seems like you see a lot of these writers uh, having to go into exile in in Spain a lot. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Michael, because uh, in episode 55, we discussed that chaotic transition from Francoist colonial rule uh, to independence, but also the establishment of another dictatorship in independent Equatorial Guinea under Francisco Macias Niguema. So how did early Guinean writers situate this new country within both that Francoist rhetoric of Hispanidad that we talked about in the previous episode, and also the negritude discourse um, of those African independence movements. Um, let me just backtrack a little bit uh, and extend what uh, Benita has just said eloquently. I was very interested in uh, the novel by uh, by Matama Jones, Una Lanza para Boabí who was in, in some ways in exile. He, he was writing in Barcelona, but writing about his life in Equatorial Guinea. It's a lengthy novel. I find it fascinating. It's one of my favorite novels of, of that time because it deals with uh, his own family. He was a Fernandino who were um, dominant in the field and he, 
he writes about a, uh, a king of a tribe there, sort of a benevolent dictator, and creates a series of, of stories and situations in which he goes off on tangents. It's a lot of stories within stories that are based on the oral tradition. And what I find interesting about him that he's writing about Equatorial Guinea from Barcelona. And as Benita said, he was a doctor and relatively well-known and well-respected. And it's unfortunate that there hasn't been a new edition of this novel that I, that I consider um, really interesting for a variety of reasons. Not only do we um, understand the oral tradition in the novel, but uh, something that uh, so many uh, African and African-American critics have talked about is, it, that has to do with double consciousness. And many, many of these writers who are uh, living in Spain and, uh, and talking about Equatorial Guinea are, are very much uh, in tune with that double consciousness that they must have as being black and, uh, and living in the colonial, the place of domination. And uh, Jones Matama is a, is a fascinating figure in that. And I, I suggest uh, people to look into, but uh, here's another issue here. Many of these novels and writings are not easily accessible. And when we deal with literature, as I do, I'm a literary critic and I'm a historian sort of secondary mm -hmm. to this, but of course we all need to, everyone in literature has to know some history. But I'm also interested in, in how novels are put together and what um, constitutes the, um, the writer's intentions, the writer's background, and how he or she puts together these stories. And that was written during, during the, um, co the colonial era, but it's perhaps one of the first the first novels, because the ones like uh, uh, Benita mentioned, the novel by Leoncio Evita, Los Cuando los Combes Luchaban, it sounds like a very radical book, but it's not at all. It's 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 very much in in favor, almost in favor of of colonialism, and with a special regard for Presbyterians living uh, living in the area. And there's a there's a a family feud, and there's natives who uh who come to challenge uh their uh domination so so we have that sort of colonial discourse within equatorial guinea and that's what makes it jones matama a little bit different in that in that he's 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 talking and dealing with his own double consciousness as he's talking about the story that he's uh writing about about equatorial guinea but of course, there's 1968 that comes along, and we have a sort of a very, a very different uh, attitude toward writing. And what I think that people like Benita and I are trying to do is um, discover a quote-unquote authentic voice, because so much about Equatorial Guinea, as Benita has just told us, has been written by, from the point of view of the colonizer. And what we're looking for are authentic views written by Africans about their own situations. And many times they, they uh, perpetuate a, a colonial ideology, but right around the, 19, the 1960s, 
there's an awakening of independence, of independent movements throughout Africa. And this is one of the reasons why I study Equatorial Guinea, because it's a tiny country. Many people say, why the hell do you want to study such a tiny country? And my answer is, well, it has, it's, it's, when you study Equatorial Guinea, you study all of Africa. It's, um, it's bordered by Cameroon in the north, Gabon in, in the south. And many of the issues, uh, historical issues and political issues that are happening in Equatorial Guinea today, such as post-colonialism, are really uh, very much part of Equatorial Guinean history. So there's, there's a new movement throughout the 60s. And in 1968, Equatorial Guinea becomes an, uh, an independent movement. And uh, Gonzalo uh, Alvarez Chiguila has told us about the Macias uh, regime under which many Equatorial Guineans suffered a great deal. And uh, Gonzalo also talked about that contradiction of, of Matias' own ideology, which he is sort of a, a Marxist authoritarian, but a Marxist Nazi in the yeah. same room. Um, and following the, the uh, tracks of, um, of Franco, Franco was in May. He was he was his discourse was very anti-Franco, but he was a collaborator of Franco as well, and learned a great deal from him in his in the way that he governed, which was mainly to liquidate his opposition and to confine people, create uh, internment camps, etc. So so there there's an anti anti-authoritarianism that comes as a result after after uh, Macias. And perhaps there are many there are many equatorial Guineans who address themselves to that. But perhaps the most the most important author this time that maybe some of your listeners listeners have heard of is Donato Ndongo Villogo, whose writing is um, is very very prolific. He's just come out with a new novel um, recently. But perhaps one of the most interesting one is um, Las Tinieblas de tu Memoria Negra, uh, Shadows of Your uh, Black Memory that's uh, been translated by uh, Swan Isle Press, and it's it's relatively um, accessible. And it has to do with, um, it's a coming-of-age novel, a boy growing up in colonial Equatorial Guinea whose father worked in the plantation, and he's known for his intellectual prowess, so the priest immediately notices that and grooms him to become a priest. And as he, as he becomes a man, and as he figures out what's happening there, he has a mentor, he has sort of two mentors, the priest and his own uncle, El Tio Abeso, who is very nationalistic, who is very much in favor of fomenting his own culture, and he watch, watches the clash between those two mentors in, in ways that are just uh, remarkable. He uses a second person narration, which is interesting, especially used by a black man, um, the, the second person tu, and he's addressing himself to, um, to himself as he's growing old and has, and, and gradually realizes uh, comes to term with his own uh, oppression. Uh, the, the main character who's the priest is somewhat ambivalent. He's very kind 
to him. He wants the uh, the young man, the intelligent young man, to study in Spain and to come back and proselytize the Catholic religion. And this young man is not having anything to do with that. So, mm-hmm. so it's um, the uh, the end of it is sort of a, an awakening of of this man into um, his his own. Uh, National, his own self awareness is is what that's about, and and now we have a new dictator in Spain by this time, and that's um, Teodoro Obiang, who promised uh, to change uh, Macias's brutal repression, but actually just continued it. We have I'm I'm jumping around to different different um, topics here, but we have to point this out that there's a new economic situation with Obiang, and that is the discovery of oil in the area, and, and how Obiang has used this to keep himself in power. As a matter of fact, before the discovery of oil, he was on his way down. There was a lot of uh, dissidents, but Bill Clinton sort of saved him because they know that there was there was oil in Equatorial Guinea, and the, um, the international community um, needed that. Sounds like you can really see this as a process of these writers. You you have this independence rather suddenly, but then kind of how do we deal with that? How do we develop our our own discourse to understand who we are? You know, exactly. as an independent nation now. But did you exactly. want to jump in as well, uh, Benita? Uh, yes. Um, so yes, I totally concur with Michael that there mm-hmm. is a lot of writing, right? Um, novels in particular. On by Equatorial Guinean writers on the issue of dictatorship. I wanted to recap um, a little bit on um, literary production during the 1970s, right? During the first dictatorship, uh, Francisco Macias Enguema, he was in power um, since in the, the country was granted independence on October 12, 1968, until he was deposed by a coup d'etat in 1979. So during this period, as Michael was saying before, many of the writers went to exile or to be more precise, because this will be the case of Donato and Dongo and also some of the major writers of that generation, such as Francisco Zamora Loboch or Juan Manuel Davis Eiso, etc. right? They were actually with um, scholarships studying in Spain yes. When uh, independence came to be, right? And so they did not have the chance or did not have the conditions, right, to return back to the country during the first dictatorship of Francisco Macias in the 1970s. So they became, in many cases, such as Donato and Dongo, although, you know, the history of his exile is long, but they became exiles by definition, right? In the 1970s, there isn't really a lot of literary production in the country, but there is some literary production by Equatorial Guinean authors, right? There is one book that is being that was published actually in um, the country's capital, in Malabo, in 1975, by Daniel Ollono Ayingono. The title of the book is El Baile de los Malditos. He was, of course, a collaborator of the Macias regime, right? But he publishes this book in the mid-1970s. There is also 
some writing right by other Guinean authors who are already in Spain for different reasons. So one of the first female writers of the country is Raquel Ilombe del Pozo Epita. So she was half Guinean, right? Her mother was of the Benga ethnic group the island from the island of Corisco, and her father was a Spanish settler, right? A planter. Um, she published her first book, which was a poetry collection in 1978. She was residing in Madrid at the time, although she was going back and forth between Spain and Equatorial Guinea. And she published her first book called Feba, a poetry collection in 1978. Also in 1978, another author from the island of formerly Fernando Po, today Bioco, Juan Balboa Boneca, Boneque, publishes a book called Donde Estas Guinea, right? Where are you, Equatorial Guinea? Reflecting on the situation on his country. So there is some writing, you know, some publications from the 1970s, the first dictatorship, but not many, of course. What we do have is more contemporary novels, writings, publications, reflecting on this first dictatorship. So I will give a few examples. Michael mentioned a few already. Juan Tomás Ávila Laurel, the author that he mentioned, which is a native of the island of Anobón, published actually two books which are solidly centered, right, anchored in 1970s. Uh, island of Anobón, so the island of Anobón under the dictatorship of Francisco Macias. The first of them is Aguala Kusangi, mm-hmm. right? Um, a short book, right? And the second one is a novel which many critics considered one of his best novels ever. In Spanish, it's called Arde el Monte de Noche, and it was translated as By Night, the Mountain Worms, right? So the novel is from 2009. It was translated in 2014, and it is one of his most famous novels. There are other very well-known novels that reflect on this first dictatorship of the country, including Donato Endongos, Los Poderes de la Tempestad, which is his second novel, right? Uh, That is also uh, a reflection on the situation in the country under this first dictatorship of um, Francisco Macias. So these are just a few examples, right, of the reflecting on the first dictatorship. Because then, yes, we do have a lot of novels reflecting on, you know, the colonial period as well, more broadly, right? But these early stages of the dictatorship have also been kind of acknowledged, right, as a literary subject. Well, and what's interesting to me is it seems like almost all of them were actually written outside of the of the country because if you wanted to have any kind of critical perspective on the regime it was just that res- restrictive that you were not able to do that from inside uh, equatorial guinea so let's take a uh, short pause now and then when we come back we'll take a look at this this issue of exile in uh, more detail and a little closer look at a couple of the writers that you already mentioned and you others as well.
back. So we've already mentioned how many of these Equatorial Guinean writers wound up living in exile in Spain. And that's something that you've written about quite a bit, uh, Michael. So I wanted to ask you because you turn, you actually coined this term, emi-exile, to refer to their condition uh, in Spain. So, you know, what did you mean by that idea? So much has written, has been written about the uh, exile writer. And in my book, I talk about the notions of emigration, immigration, and uh, migration, and exile. Uh, the intellectual who is unable to stay in his own country, it has an, an air of intellectuality, cultural, cultural acceptance, emigre, for example. But the immigrant is, or the, my, or the emigrant, those are, are two different words. The, the uh, immigrant is the one who is staying here sort of in a, in a way that, in a place where that person doesn't belong. Whereas the emigrant leaves a certain area, leaves um, a home, a culture, a language, right? So, so what, what my, my true nuance in that, uh, that word emixile is, is a discussion of all the different ways in which exile uh, manifests itself. And, and one of the points that, that I've, I've made on many occasions is when we talk about immigration, much too often we don't deal with where these cultures, the languages, the countries out of which these immigrants are coming. For example, an African in Spain might be from Senegal or from Cameroon or from, no, no, he, to, to most Spaniards, he's just an, an African, a uh, Central African. And, and I think it would, it, it would be a, um, a uh, tremendous progress in any country that, that has its dealing with immigration to place more attention on the situations that make these immigrants leave. And, and it, there's a fine line between leaving for economic reasons and leaving for political reasons. And, and many of these, these writers uh, from Equatorial Guinea really manifest that, that uh, whole uh, distinction. Although I do want to point out that there's a, there's a tension between those Africans living in Spain that are not Equatorial uh, Ghanaian and Equatorial Ghanaians living in Spain who, who think of Spain as their country, right? It's a former colony. And one, one of the um, things that people who, uh, Africans, uh, Ghanaians who read, who read my book about exile said, cuidado, ugarte, yo no vine en patera. I, I did not come to Spain here on a raft. You know, I'm, I'm more of this culture and, and that should be acknowledged. And I think in my book, I did um, acknowledge that. But in any case, the whole issue of exile, leaving of one's home, adapting to a new culture, the fusion of those cultures is, is an issue that I find fascinating and it expresses itself in all kinds of ways in the writing of, um, of Equatorial Ghanaians. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, and I wanted to ask you about that as well, because we've already mentioned a couple of times uh, Donato Ndongo and, and a couple of his novels. It sounds like he's really kind of a giant um, in this field. But could you tell us a little more about his uh, personal um, history and how he interpreted that exilic experience? And you also mentioned previously that idea of, of a double consciousness. Uh, yes. I think that was very important for him as well, right? Oh, very much, very uh -huh. much. Um, Las tinieblas de tu, uh, de, de la it's, actually, it's a, it's a trilogy. Um, uh, Las tinieblas, Los Poderes de la Tempestad, as uh, Benita mentioned, the powers of the tempest um, that had to do with uh, the post-independence. Um, because um, Las tinieblas de tu memoria negra takes place during the colonial period. And as I said, it's a coming-of-age novel. And Donato has been asked uh, time and time again if that protagonist in his novel has anything to do with himself. And of course he says no, he has to say no to create, mm -hmm. but there's, there, there's a lot that's, uh, that's similar there. Donato actually uh, was in the seminary and, um, and he, he lived in Spain with that idea that at one time he might go go back to Equatorial Guinea, not not exactly as a priest, but to go back there as as someone who can make the the country uh, progress. But what happens was as um, Obiang took over, he actually did come go back to Equatorial Guinea just to experiment. Uh, let's see what's going to happen here now with a new regime. And Obiang and his cronies made it literally almost impossible for him uh, to stay. And he had to leave the, the, the story of his uh, exile. First, he had to, he had to move to uh, Gabon. His wife is from Gabon. And from there, he, uh, he was able to go to Spain, uh, lived in Murcia for a long time. As a matter of fact, I, I think uh, he's there now. So he's a he's a really good example of all all of these things that um, the, all of these issues that we're uh, talking about. And I also wanted to ask you about his novel El Metro in particular because oh, it seemed yeah. like that one really kind of captured what you're saying about this exile experience. So could you just tell us a little about? Um, what happens in, in that novel and, and you know, what he tries to, to capture about, uh, you know, being a Guinean in Spain through that? Right. El Metro is a re remarkable novel. It, it, unfortunately, it has yet um, to be translated. It, it, it's very important for it to be translated. It, it's, uh, it's one of his best novels. And it has to do not necessarily with Equatorial Guinea, but with uh, African immigration to Spain. And what's what's wonderful about the novel is that it begins, I mean, several hundred pages deal with the protagonist's life right there in his um, African community and his exile of sorts, but not necessarily for economic reasons, but for cultural reasons. It was a marriage, a marriage that the family did not accept that forces him 
out of out of the area with an I a vague idea of perhaps returning to his community. So so we have we have really a sort of a day-to-day experience of the African moving away from Africa and into Spain and all of his his trials and tribulations. I've called it an epic novel, something of an epic novel. And when he finally gets to Spain, the kinds of things that he is able to do to find work, he finds work in in the in the harvest country that so many Africans do and they in Murcia and Almería, the metro. Uh, he there's a lot of love experiences. Constantly thinking about his home, which is a very important issue in so many of these African immigrants living in Spain now. Spaniards see them all the time, but few Spaniards think of what what their life is is like in their in their homeland and what they're thinking about what, what who their family is etc but this novel you see precisely that mm-hmm. and um i don't want to give it away but i will <laughs> because this the significant <laughs> section if you, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hope people read it, it you, you can imagine what happens it, it it ends tragically in a metro in spain with a um a person, a Spanish person who doesn't want Africans in in Spain, and he's he's the victim of a uh, of a brutal uh, killing there, and and that's what the the metro is is all about. It's a, it's subterranean, um, and and uh, and and that's the ending of it. So mm. it's a it's a uh, remarkable novel. Again, though, Donato's written other things. He's written a great deal of essays. Well, thank you, Michael, because I think you bring up this issue of uh, a lot of the attention in this field kind of being focused on a few um, individuals. And that's something I noticed with your work as well, Benita, that you pointed out that um, it in some ways is kind of a male-dominated field, even though, as you mentioned, from an early period, you do have women writers uh, as well. So I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that um, in the more contemporary period, you know, who are some of the most prominent uh, women writers and, and what are some of the principal themes that emerge from their works in particular? Yes, so in a way, both the literary canon, so to speak, and also scholarship, right, has been focusing mainly on male writers uh, from Equatorial Guinea, uh, beginning, you know, with the earlier works of the 1960s and up to contemporary times. And of course, we have Magnific- magnificent, right? Uh, male writers of this period and these generations, but somehow not so much focused has been placed on female writers. And they had kind of a late start into the, the panorama, right? The literary panorama, partially because also the anthologies on the literature of Equatorial Guinea had put them in a kind of marginal place, right? Uh, Maybe not the fault of the anthologers, but it just happened to be that way, right? So I don't want to blame the authors of these anthologies. 
but it is how it happened. And so it kind of consolidated, right? Like a late start for them, for these women, right? To appear as solidly part of the literary canon. So I will give like three examples, right? The first anthology of the literature of Equatorial Guinea was published by Donato Endongo in Madrid in 1984. It was a very modest anthology, right? Modest in the sense that it is only 215 pages, although it came, right, as a very, like, exciting, uh, you know, new collection, right, of the writings of this country and so on in the Madrid of La Movida, you know, Almodóvar and so on. So it was like a very exciting project. Uh, this anthology compiled the works of 24 authors, but only two of them were women, right? Uh, Raquel Ilombe del Pozo Epita that I mentioned before, she, she published her poetry collection in 1978, and Maria Ensue Angue, right? The author of the big novel, you know, Ecomo, right? That was published in 18, uh, 1985. So only two women in this first anthology. The anthology is published in 1984. So there is a second edition of this anthology published by Donato Endongo as well with scholar Mbare Engom. He's originally from Conakry. He works, he, he's a professor at Morgan State University, right? A great anthology, much more ambitious than the first one, almost 500 pages. It has about 30 authors. And yet of these 30 authors, only four are women. The same two as in the first anthology, Raquel Ilombe del Pozo Epita plus Maria Ensue Angue, and two additional, two additional women, uh, Maria Caridad Riloja and Trinidad Morgades Besari. And this is an anthology published in the year 2000, right? Only four women and 30 male authors. And we are in the year 2000. So the third anthology comes in the year 2012, published by Embarengo as the second one with Gloria Nistal. This is a very ambitious project already, almost 1,000 pages. I don't know how many authors, but many. Um, it is a very interesting anthology as well, because we didn't talk much about it, but there is more to literature than writing and more than writing in Spanish as well. So this third anthology from 2012 includes about the first third of it, about 300 pages on literature recorded, translated into Spanish from oral tradition, right? From all the oral traditions of the different ethnic groups on the country. However, going back to the issue of gender, if we had two women included in the first anthology of 1984 and four women included in the second anthology of the year 2000, in this third anthology of the year 2012, we have seven women. And the anthology has 1,000 pages. Mm -hmm. Of course, nobody claims authorship, right, for the oral tradition literature because it is collective work, right? And one third of the anthology is about oral, oral literature. But yet, there are only seven women writers acknowledged or in, incorporated into this anthology. So the, uh, to the list of those that we had before, we have now three new names, Remey Sipi, 
Guillermina Mecui and Paloma del Sol. And these are the seven women recorded in the anthologies, right? By the year um, 2012. This doesn't mean that a lot of writing has not been done by women because it has, right? So Reme Sipi is the author of not only many works, uh, essays and literary works as well, but actually she took it upon her, she resides in Barcelona most of the time, although I'm not sure if she will consider herself exiled because she goes back and forth to the country as well, right? But she established in Barcelona a printing press, right? Ediciones May, where she publishes works from African authors, including many Guineans, but also others, right? So she's not only an author, but also an editor. And there are many other women, right, that wrote in these like first decades of the 2000s who went kind of unacknowledged. So another example is Cristina Jombe Jangani, right? She writes Identidad Cultural en the Web. These are important books for different reasons, right? Whether they are, you know, novels or follow other, you know, genres, they are important. And of course, we do have like a kind of big explosion, right, of literary voices which are female in the last few years, I will say like from 2016 onwards, right? One very, very important voice is Trifonia Melibea Obono and Tutumu. She published her first book in 2016, Herencia de And since then, 2016, the first book, I think she is the author as of today of eight different books, right? So almost like, you know, more than one book per year. And there are many other, like, you know, young and emerging writers living in the country, right, which contribute to this canon, such as Juliana Mbengono, Anita Ichaikoto, or Adelaida Ondua Casaña, just like to mention a few of the most mm -hmm. recent ones, right, that had books published in the last three years or so. Uh, Benita, thank you so much for giving that that summary of all the, all the women writers. And I think what what um, the number of women writers tells us is about the nature of literature itself, about anthologies, how anthologies are are put together, uh, who controls those anthologies, and also what how we sort of devalue the oral tradition. Um, it, it, the, this is why the writing of Equatorial Guinea fascinates me because it questions the very notion of, of literature. Who, it, it makes us ask, who are the readers of, of these? No, and, and we have to admit that uh, the vast majority are, are Spaniards because in Equatorial Guinea, the system of education is so poor that they don't even have access to these novels. So. So um, the literature of women is, is absolutely um, essential to studying this. And I, I just want to just give a, my assessment of uh, Maria Ensue's uh, novel, Ecomo. I am, and, and I know that, you know, we're, we're not here to make judgments of the quality of, of literature, but I found that novel one of the most fascinating 
novels I've I've read in the entire uh, corpus of equatorial Ghanaian literature, and it's because of its musicality. It's it's because of it's it's almost prose poetry. Uh, it discusses customs, discusses dancing, music, and as it discusses music, it itself becomes musical. And it's reading that novel is almost like entering into a different world, a world that we Western readers are are not familiar with. And I, I don't have time to go into the, the plot of it, but it's absolutely fascinating. One of the, the seeming contradictions is that the name of the novel, Ecomo, is a man, while the most important character is, is a woman. Just that very contradiction tells you tells you a little bit about, but it's it's just a wonderful novel. Also about um, Melibea, Trifonia Melibea Obono. One of that, one of her novels, La Bastarda, is the theme is the plight of a lesbian of a lesbian woman. And uh, Trifonia Melibea is perhaps, at least as far as I know of, maybe Benita, correct me, the only openly lesbian woman writer in Equatorial Guinea, and probably one of the few um, in Africa. Just her her whole case, her her presence, her life is fascinating. She's also written a great uh, some essays that are just remarkable vindication defense of women's rights her place she's she's also interesting because she's very much involved in uh in education and if i may give an anecdote i know we're not we're supposed to be intellectuals and not and not give anecdotes but i i do in my classes a lot and i'll abuse my uh my presence here i don't know if benita remembers this but there was a uh a conference of Africanists in um, in Madrid in the UNED, uh, the Universidad de Estancia. Trifonia Melibea was there. She gave a, a presentation on the abuse of women among the Fang culture. She is Fang. And it, it was just devastating, the kinds of things that we she, she said about how women are treated in that culture. And she was one of the few women in in that that whole session that we have and she was subjected to an interrogation by the male writers and male intellectuals including to say no no you have it all wrong that's that's not what fang that's not what fang culture is all about so she she's among the uh the women writers whom i i most admire for for her her steadfastness and and um her affirmation of herself, you know, mm-hmm. when when that affirmation comes into uh, a lot of conflict. Yeah, well, th- thank you. That is uh, very interesting because I actually wanted to ask you a little more about that as well, Benita. And and particularly, I was interested in the writer uh, Maria Nusue because uh, both of you mentioned her as well and. I know you wrote about her quite a bit and um, some of the difficulties that she faced being a woman writer in this kind of male dominated field, um, as we said. So could you talk a little about, you know, what her story is and, and what some of those difficulties that she faced were? Yes. So Maria Nsue is also fan, right? She belongs to the ethnic group of the fan, just like Trifon Melibea 
of Ono. And um, she is the first um, women, uh, woman in, in Equatorial Guinea to publish a novel, right? I say publish, not writing, because, you know, they are not exactly the same thing. Yes. To publish a novel, um, as Michael said, right, this novel is Ecomo, the title of the novel is Ecomo. It was published in 1985. And like Michael, I am, you know, fascinated by that novel. I think it is absolutely um, wonderful. It's fascinating. Uh, the novel was published in Madrid, although she claims she wrote it in Malabo, in the capital city of the country. Uh, she had been living in Spain for um, a number of years during her childhood and, and early youth, right? And then she returned to Equatorial Guinea and wrote this novel. The novel was also translated into French. So there is a French edition of a few years later. And, and there is even a second edition of the novel, right? Not yet one in English, but there is a second edition of the novel. So it is, you know, it circulates widely and it, it is accessible. I don't think she was ever persecuted in, in the country for writing this novel, but she was like a breakthrough, right? She was like the first woman that wrote, you know, an important novel that it is acknowledged by everyone. So I think all these younger writers that I mentioned before, including Melibea Obono, right? They look at Maria Ensue and her novel Ecomo as an important precursor, right? Like the type of, you know, literary mother figure, right? In which they find the inspiration and, you know, it's it's like a role model for them, right? Mm -hmm. Maria Ensue, um, at least for the last, she was a journalist and for the last few years of her life, uh, she died in 2017. She also wrote as a, I mean, worked as a storyteller, right? As a, a traditional storyteller, like cuenta cuentos, right? So she will tell um, oral narratives, right? Of the fan tradition for children, even in a TV program in Equatorial Guinea, and so on. Um, in addition to this novel, she is also the author of uh, two books on short stories from, you know, um, uh, collected from oral history, right, from fan tradition. The first uh, of these books uh, came out in 1999. It's called Relatos. And the second of the books came out just in 2017 when she passed away. And it is called Cuentos y Relatos. It is a, comp a big, you know, long compilation with many short stories and narratives of the oral tradition. So she was very invested in um, kind of combining, right, like these two walls of the Western literary tradition, novelistic tradition, but also the oral history of fan tradition. Um, so I just have one more question here that I wanted to ask both of you, fact, because as Michael alluded to way back at the beginning, you probably do get asked sometimes, you know, why are you studying the literature of this very small country, uh, Equatorial Guinea? So I'm, I'm wondering how you answer that question if, you know, you think that this example can reveal something to us about that experience of being in exile or being African 
in the post-colonial world that we might miss if we just look at more well-known examples like France's relationship with its former colonies, for instance. I've been a, a Hispanist for many years. I've I've retired, and I'm I have made a great discovery when my colleague Marvin Lewis brought Donato Ndongo to to um, to give a talk, and I was fascinated by this. Also, as as an American, I've always been very interested in the African American experience and the whole issue of of race. One of my favorite authors is James Baldwin, and I've read um, a lot of uh, African writers who are considered um, high, highly regarded uh, intellectuals. So the fact that this, these issues could be talked about in Spain as well, that, that's usually incorrectly been considered as, as an all white culture. The only cultural differences are between Basques and uh, Castilians and Gallegos and all that. When, all of that is changing now with this global village that we're dealing with. So Equatorial Guinea gave me and is still giving me a chance to think about these world issues, these big, big issues within a country and within a colonial situation that, that I'm uh, familiar with. Yeah, so my interest in, in Equatorial Guinea uh, really comes through uh, the colonial prism, right? As a, you know, a scholar in, in colonial studies, I'm very much invested, right, in colonial histories in the Americas, in the Caribbean, and also in, in Spanish Africa, right? So I became very interested in, in Equatorial Guinea. I try to follow up as much as I can with, you know, all the literature coming out of the authors from the country, um, although I do not write exclusively on literature, I write on other subjects related to the colonial condition, right? But I am actually fascinated with the literature of the country. And I think that Equatorial Guinea has, you know, for being a relatively small country, a very disproportionately large number of extraordinary writers. Absolutely, that's true. Very extraordinary true. writers and mm -hmm. extraordinary, you know, novel novels, poetry collections, and so on. So um, yes, I, I am also very interested within literature on all these works, and this is actually something that many of the authors do. All these works that revisit, right, and challenge, you know, in different ways the colonial history of the country. So it is quite a trend, it is quite a topic, right? It is quite a, a literary issue to revisit the colonial history, right? Of, you know, particular episodes, moments, uh, regions, right? Territories of what today comprises Equatorial Guinea through literary works. And I am quite fascinated by that, right? There are like so many examples of those, yes. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for um, sharing some of this uh, very interesting world of the Equatorial Guinean writers with us. And hopefully listeners will be able to go out and explore some of those works uh, for themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Foster, for your interest in this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org.
Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.